Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bible to the Forbidden Chapter. And uh, if you don't know where the Forbidden Chapter is, I'll remind you of a story I told a couple Sundays ago about a, a man named Zvi Kalisher. Uh, Zvi was a uh, Jewish Holocaust survivor who moved to Israel after World War II and came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And Zvi became a zealous evangelist, especially among his own people. And he used to go into Mea Sharim, the ultra-Orthodox section of Jerusalem, and witness. <clears throat> and even though uh, in Mea Sharim, the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews are hostile to people who try to share about Jesus with them, they sort of had to tolerate Zvi because uh, he was a Jewish Holocaust survivor and an older man, and they were supposed to respect him, and so he could kind of get away with it. And uh, they, they had to tolerate him. And he would often go into the seminary where young Jewish men were studying the Old Testament, and he liked to ask them questions like, who is the suffering servant of the Lord referred to in Isaiah 53? Uh, he liked to use that text to try and persuade Orthodox Jews for Christ. And Zvi called Isaiah 53 the forbidden chapter. And the reason why was because even though the Orthodox Jews have an interpretation of this chapter, even though they, they have a way of explaining it and understanding it for themselves, Zvi found that in practice, they preferred not to talk about that interpretation. Their preference was simply to ignore the chapter, to, to not talk about it. And the reason why is because it's as clear a description of Jesus of, of Nazareth as you can find anywhere in the Bible, yet it was written over 700 years before He came as a prophecy of His coming. Let's read the text together. We're going to start in Isaiah 52 verse 13, and see if you can identify as many details of Jesus of Nazareth as you can uh, as we read this text from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, the Lord is speaking, and He says, "'Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so His appearance will be marred more than any man.'" and His form more than the sons of men. Thus He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of Him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they did not hear they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. 
putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe the Bible is the authoritative, uh, verbally inspired Word of God, that it is without error, Uh, that it is infallible, that it is God-breathed. And we don't just believe that every word is there by divine intentionality. We believe that every verb tense of every verb and every plural singular construction of every noun is there by divine intentionality. And the reason we believe that is because when you see Jesus and the apostles argue uh, against other positions, they often give arguments that boil down not just to a single word, but the verb tense of a single verb, like Jesus with the Sadducees speaking about the resurrection, or a, a, a plural singular construction of a word, like Paul talking about Abraham's seed uh, in, the, in, in his letters. And uh, so, we believe that every uh, verb tense of every verb, every plural single, singular construction of every noun, it's there for a reason. Um, and we study Scripture uh, with that in mind. That's why I get geeky with you about sharing Greek and Hebrew word studies and going on and on about that stuff. But here's the thing. We don't just believe that God's Word, everything is there by divine intentionality in terms of the microscopic details that I get excited about in the pulpit. We also believe that about the big picture. It is significant for us that God has given us uh, two bodies of literature, uh, that He gave His revelation over time progressively, and that we now have what we would call the Old and New Testaments, and we believe that in the big picture, that's there by divine intentionality as well. Um, One of the great advantages of having an Old and New Testament is that they lend to support to each other and strengthen our faith. For example, when Zvi Kalisher would witness to his fellow Jews, he wasn't reduced to begging them to read this Christian New Testament and at least consider the claims of Jesus. No, no, no. He could go right to the Scriptures that they believe in, the Old Testament, the the Isaiah scroll, and reason with them from Isaiah. And when you see what Moses and the prophets wrote about uh, the Messiah that would come, and you see then the fulfillment of all those prophecies as recorded in the New Testament, it strengthens your faith in the Old Testament. On the other hand, uh, if you are a Christian and you've already come to Jesus, but you've never read a word of the Old Testament for yourself, what you're going to find as you study your New Testament is that Jesus uh, affirmed and believed in the entire Old Testament. And if you take the time to study the Old Testament for yourself, what you'll find is that it will actually enhance your understanding of the New Testament, because so much in the New Testament refers back to and cites and illustrates what was written in the Old Testament. Uh, And that's the way it works as you grow in Christ. The better you come to know Jesus through the New Testament, the more you understand that the roots of His life and ministry sink deep into the nutrient-rich soil of the Old Testament. 
Uh, and the better you get to know the Old Testament, you see how it really does point to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised servant God would send. One of the other things that you start to see, I think, if you will read the Old Testament for yourself, is you'll begin to see that this plan of God in sending a Messiah, that this plan by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was not a plan for Him to come and just be spontaneous, uh, you know, in the moment about how He responded to situations. What you find is that the life of Jesus uh, fulfills a lot of very specific prophecies that were given by the Trinity before He came. There was a very specific plan and a very specific ministry He came to fulfill. So, as we study Isaiah 53 this morning, what we're going to find is not just content about who God's servant will be when He comes, we're also going to find confirmation of these words because we know that they were fulfilled in history. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt, we're not kidding, that uh, this was written 700 years before He came, and yet the details are so clear that He fulfilled uh, when He came uh, as Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin. Now, a couple Sundays ago, I explained to you the Orthodox Jewish view of Isaiah 53. Last Sunday, I explained some of the objections that secular people have uh, to the idea of a substitutionary atonement. This week, I want to look at this passage from the perspective of Islam. Uh, Twenty years ago, I studied the Quran for myself, and I read it cover to cover. I studied it, and uh, those things I had questions about. I asked friends who had grown up in Muslim countries, or I consulted the relevant portions of the Hadith, uh, and and so I studied it for myself. And as I studied it, I I discovered what Islam teaches about Jesus of Nazareth. Islam teaches that there was a historical man uh, named Jesus of Nazareth, and that he was a great prophet sent by God, but he wasn't God's son and he didn't die. In fact, he was such a great prophet that he escaped the death that the Sanhedrin had planned for him and was assumed, later on was assumed up into heaven the same way that Elijah was, as recorded in the Old Testament. The Quran says in Surah 4, 157, and I quote, "'And for their saying,' that is the Jews, "'for their saying, indeed we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Mary, the messenger of God,' And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumption. And they did not kill him for certain. Rather, Allah raised him to himself. So if you share the good news of the gospel with a devout Muslim who, who actually reads the Quran for themselves, they, they know what they believe, it's not just like a cultural thing where they were raised in a Muslim family, so they sort of identify with that. But if you, if you speak to a devout Muslim and you share the good news of Christ with them, what you'll find is that they reject the good news of Jesus dying in their place, having fulfilled the requirements of the law. They reject that because they don't believe Jesus died. Uh, now, Muslims can be very polite about Jesus. They can, they can say He's a prophet, for example. Uh, they can say a lot of nice things even about the Old and New Testament. Uh, it is not deceptive for them to claim that they believe the Old and New Testament uh, were sent to us, were inspired by God. 
However, if you descend down into the details with them, what you'll find is that they believe the Old and New Testaments as we have them now are texts that have been hopelessly corrupted. And that's a claim that can be falsified easily uh, by textual criticism, which we were just talking about downstairs in Sunday school class. For instance, the text of Isaiah that we have is the same as the text of Isaiah that we find back in the 200s B.C. uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the other thing they'll say is that uh, uh, where the Bible and the Quran differ, the Quran updates and clarifies or even corrects uh, the Old or New Testament. And they have a precedent for this within the Quran itself. Early on in the Quran, there's a prohibition about uh, drinking alcohol. Later on in the Quran, uh, it's okay to drink alcohol but in moderation. And they would say that that later teaching updates and revises and corrects what's written earlier in the Quran. Well, they would say the same thing is happening with the Old and New Testament. The result then in the case of Jesus is that even though they can say some very polite, very nice things about Him as a prophet, uh, what they teach is that the central message of the New Testament is a mistake. Uh, Jesus didn't voluntarily die for sins. He didn't rise from the dead because there was no need for Him to rise from the dead. Therefore, the central message of Christianity is false. But for their claim to stand, they have to not only undo the New Testament, but I wonder if they understand that they have to do the entire Old Testament that they say they believe in as well, because the Old Testament is now a record of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, The truth you read in Isaiah 53 is about God sending a special servant into the world to die as a guilt offering in the place of sinners, and that wasn't written by Christians after Jesus died uh, in a mistaken attempt to explain what happened on Good Friday. This was written by a Jewish prophet 700 years before Jesus came. And the prophecy is not of a great prophet uh, who escapes death, but of a Messiah who dies explicitly in the place of sinners as a sacrifice for them. Notice that the preeminent servant of God was sent to die in our passage this morning. Verse 7, he will be like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and the attempt to slaughter him will succeed, because verse 8 says, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Cut off is just a a Hebraism for a killing. He will be executed. Verse 9, prophesies his burial. burial. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He died. There's further confirmation of his death in verse 12. The Lord says, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. The text is clear that God's chosen servant will die, but why does he have to die? Well, there's a theological reason. Uh, Theological liberalism and progressive Christianity tend to portray the death of Jesus as an accident. Uh, He was a good teacher. He was just trying to get people to love each other, but he became entangled in a complicated and messy political situation with the Sanhedrin, and things got out of hand. Uh, But that's not what Isaiah 53 teaches. His death happened by design. The plan was for him to die and to die for a reason. Ten times in this chapter, we're told why he came to die. Let me read them for you so you can see why he died. I'm going to read them for you, uh, all ten of them, without comment. It'll hurt me as a pastor not to stop and comment, but I'm going to try and control myself, okay? You ready? Here we go. Verse 4, 
Surely our griefs He Himself bore away, and our sorrows He carried away. Verse 5, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Verse 6, the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Verse 11, He will bear away their iniquities. Verse 12, He bore away the sin of many. Ten statements in this chapter about the reason why the Lord's preeminent servant had to die. All people have gone astray like a bunch of foolish sheep. We've demanded our own way. That's rebellion against the one who made us and loves us. And so, God's special servant came to die in our place to take the penalty our rebellion deserves so that we could be forgiven. And if you deny that He died, you deny the gospel and you deny the central message of Christianity. Either the Bible is wrong on this issue or the Quran is wrong, but they're not both right. They're, they, they can't be harmonized in some way, right? They contradict each other and for the good of your soul. And you have both. You have the Bible. You have the Quran. You can read them for yourselves. For the good of your soul, you have to come to a conclusion, a settled persuasion about these things. Now, as we consider Isaiah 53, one of the things I've been uh, remiss in doing is I've said on, I think, multiple occasions during this series that Isaiah 53 is the fourth servant song in Isaiah. Isaiah has these poetic and prophetic uh, servant songs where the Lord is speaking about this servant He will send into the world, and this is His greatest of all time servant. This is the most preeminent servant He will send into the world to do His work, but we haven't talked much about those other servant songs. And I, I want to talk about them today because verses 7 through 9, which is what we're going to study today, they really, uh, it, they really help explain and help us understand some of the mysteries that are in the earlier songs. The first servant song is in Isaiah 42. Uh, and we looked at some of this. I only looked at about half the song with you, but a couple months ago we looked at Isaiah 42. Uh, in that song, the Lord speaks about a chosen hand-picked servant He will send in whom His soul delights. And this servant will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about justice and righteousness and salvation. And this salvation He brings won't just be for Israel, it will be for all the Gentiles, and He will be a great light uh, to Gentile nations. Um, he will open spiritually blind eyes. He will deliver prisoners from the dungeon of sin. The, in the second servant song, which is in Isaiah 49, uh, it, it, something surprising happens. In the song, we are allowed to hear the servant speak for himself ahead of time prophetically, uh, and what he says is that he will be a human being born of a woman who will grow up to restore the nation of Israel to, to their God, and He will bring salvation to the Gentiles. And then in Isaiah 50, you get the third servant song, and again, you get to hear God's chosen servant speak about Himself and what He will do. And one of the things He says that's very strange in Isaiah 50 is that He will submit voluntarily to being struck and having his beard plucked out and being spat upon uh, because uh, there is this humiliation that his master, his Lord, has sent him to endure, and he needs to endure it. The problem is in Isaiah 50, he doesn't tell you why. 
So, you learn that when He comes, He will endure some kind of humiliation at some point, but you're not told why. You're not told why it has to happen or what it's all about, which is one of the things that makes Isaiah 53 so rich, because in Isaiah 53, we see why He had to go through a suffering, why He had to be humiliated. That's in the stanza of Isaiah 53 we've come to today. Now, in the previous stanzas of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 is really five stanzas of three verses each that actually starts, the the song starts back in Isaiah 52 verse 13, and we've come to the fourth stanza today. And in the other stanzas, what we've seen is the Lord sending His servant, and the Lord will strike him down uh, um, as He causes the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. But you've also seen that people, when He comes, people will respond to Him, and and He'll end up being despised and rejected. But now in this stanza, we're introduced to a brand new thought in the song. The servant, for his part, will willingly submit to this suffering in silence. There will be a a clear-headed, self-restrained voluntariness that accepts what happens to him. Uh, And so, now we see that the servant isn't caught in a web of events he can't escape from. No, he accepts and submits to this turn of events. His tongue and mind alike are united and disciplined to say an unequivocal yes to his suffering by remaining silent and not opposing the injustice he will face. And so, what you have in verses 7 through 9 really is the execution of the Lord's servant. And though this execution is unjust from a human point of view, it's used by God to pay for the transgressions of sinners. Verse 7 is about an unjust trial the servant will face. Verse 8 speaks explicitly about his death. And then verse 9 gives some words that I think in Isaiah's day would have been somewhat mysterious about his burial. Let's look first at his unjust trial. In verse 7 we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Uh, In his trial before a human court, the servant was oppressed. Uh, What happened was unjust. Uh, At the time, the Jews had the greatest system on earth of jurisprudence. They had all these protections for people who were accused. For instance, uh, you couldn't have a trial at night. You had to have it during the daytime in a specified place uh, that was laid out in the town during daylight hours where people from the community could come and watch the proceedings. And it was designed that way because it was believed that uh, having the community uh, be able to freely witness all trials that happen brought a, a form of accountability to judges and juries, right? That, that uh, light, exposing things to the light, uh, brings accountability. And so, their system was set up that day. You had to try someone during daylight hours. And if, uh, if what you were trying was a capital case where if they were found guilty, it would result in the death penalty, if at any point during the trial, uh, witnesses gave contradictory testimony 
uh, the accused was automatically declared not guilty and allowed to go free. And even if they were condemned as guilty, in the Jewish system and in the Sanhedrin, there was a 40-day waiting period before their execution. You can read about this in the Talmud. Uh, there's a 40-day uh, waiting period uh, before their execution where, uh, they, uh, where their friends and family are allowed to come and give witness as character witnesses, but also for them to find any new evidence that might acquit them. And you remember what happened uh, during the Jewish trials of Jesus before Annas and before Caiaphas, right? They broke many of their own rules of jurisprudence. They arrested Him illegally at night. They tried Him at night. They struck Him on more than one occasion. He got slapped during the trial, which was uh, against their own rules. Judged by the standards of their own system, what they did was unjust. It was oppressive. And verse 7 goes on to say that in addition to being oppressed, the Lord's servant was afflicted. Now, that word afflicted connects with him being afflicted back in verse 4, but there's a new detail that's really important. The verb for afflicted in verse 7 is in the reflexive form. What that means is he voluntarily allowed himself to be afflicted. Yes, he was oppressed by hostile people, but for his own part, he allowed himself to be afflicted. The, po the poetic uh, construction of the first line of verse 7 here, it gives a sense of contemporaneous action. He was oppressed by evil people, but while at the same time allowing himself to be afflicted. Uh, one of the commentaries I'm using for Isaiah is by J. Alec Motyer, and Motyer, in addition to trying to give you a good commentary, he likes to create his own translation. He, he labors to give you his own translation, and here's how he translates the opening line of verse 7. He was oppressed, yet it was he who was humbling himself and did not open his mouth. I, I, that's not quite a word-for-word -word translation, but I think it captures the idea that the opening of verse 7 is communicating. So, when it comes to verse 7, we're now standing on sacred ground in the sense that we now see the servant isn't caught in a web of events outside his control. He's voluntarily submitting to what's happening to him. This is why the cross, verse 7, answers uh, the modern secular objection that the cross is just divine child abuse, right? And we dealt with that yesterday, uh, uh, last Sunday, and so I won't go into it now. You can listen to that at the end of last week's sermon. But it wasn't divine child abuse. Uh, he was a grown adult who voluntarily went through an unjust trial and went to the cross because it's what he chose for himself. There was something bigger going on than just an unjust trial and he knew that this is what the Lord had for him. The Son of God agreed to the plan and went to his death voluntarily. And he didn't open his mouth to oppose it, right? He was like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before it shears. Uh, when my children were younger, we went through a Shaun the Sheep phase. I don't know if you've ever seen that cartoon, claymation cartoon, but we went through a Shaun the Sheep phase. And uh, we would even, uh, sometimes we would act it out on our own. And so I would be the farmer, and Grant would be the trusty sheepdog, Bitzer, and then Claire and May would play Shaun and the other sheep. And one of our th favorite things to act out 
was shearing time. I would get my, you know, cordless razor and I would, you know, make sure there was a cover on it. And I'd turn it on so we had a buzzing sound and pretend it was shears and I'd go to shear them. And of course, the moment it turned on, the sheep would go nuts and they would scatter and I'd have to try to run around and wrangle them down or get them. And maybe we would pretend that my glasses got broken and I had really bad eyesight. And so I'd go after the sheepdog, you know, and the sheepdog's like, I'm not a sheep. You know, he's trying to defend himself and I'd get bitzer, you know, and and we had a great time. Now, here's the problem with that. Even though that's sort of in keeping with the plot and the humor of Sean the Sheep as a, as a television show, that's not the way shearing sheep works in real life. In real life, if you ever see this happen, the sheep trust their shepherd, and so the shepherd leads them to where they're supposed to be sheared, and they just stand there and take it. They don't run away. They don't get unhappy. They don't start bleeding and making all these verbal protests. They'll just sit there, and you can share them. They are incredibly docile uh, when you share them. Well, in the same way, the Lord's servant will be incredibly and surprisingly docile about this whole unjust trial. Now, that kind of submission is not normal, right? That's not normal. When someone's innocent, they cry out. They protest their own innocence. They appeal to the court for justice to be done. Uh, They witness to their own innocence, but not the servant of the Lord. And the reason he won't cry out is because something something bigger is going on than just an unjust trial at the hands of a corrupt human court. This is a service to the Lord that he is rendering. The plan requires that he die as a lamb for the sins of his people. To be slaughtered was the plan. And it's important to notice that the servant here is compared to a sheep because sheep were the primary animals in the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant. Each year, a lamb was slain uh, for, uh, for uh, it would cover an entire household on the Passover, and Jesus died at the same time the Passover lambs were being offered in the temple. And there's a symbolism there that people, that we're not supposed to miss. Jesus didn't just die on any day of the calendar year, He died during Passover. When the greatest prophet of all time, John the Baptist, let me rephrase that because Jesus was a prophet, Uh, when the greatest human-only prophet of all time, John the Baptist, came and he announced that the Lord's servant had come into the world, what did he say? He didn't say, behold your king. He could have legitimately said that, right, because Messiah will be a king, but Messiah had to suffer first for the sins of His people to reconcile them to God. Then later on, He brings in His kingdom. And so, what did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I believe John was saying that, not just because that was what was going down, that was in truth what was happening in front of them redemptively. I believe he said that because John knew Isaiah 53, and he saw that Jesus was the Lamb prophesied in Isaiah 53. Israel will have her great king, but the king died first as a sacrificial lamb. Uh, Now, the attitude of the Lord's servant uh, that we see in these verses, it corresponds perfectly with what Jesus said in the garden, right? Not my will, but yours be done. Though the trial was unjust, he went to his own death silently, willingly, not in protest, but in obedience to the Lord who sent him. Verse 8 continues this idea. It, It continues talking about his unjust trial, and it makes it clear that this unjust trial will lead to his death. He will be successfully slaughtered. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered 
that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Now, I suppose it's possible. Remember, now, try, try to suspend. I think it's helpful for us every now and then when we're reading this passage to try and suspend our knowledge of the New Testament and, and what happened with Christ. I suppose it would be uh, possible as you're reading this prophecy, looking ahead, to think that maybe this injustice will be due to mob violence. Maybe a mob will arise against this servant of the Lord, like sometimes happen against prophets in the Old Testament. Maybe a mob will arise and accuse him of something and without a trial condemn him as guilty and then murder the guy, and maybe that will be the injustice done to him, a, a, a sort of a mob violence. But verse 7 makes it clear that there will be a trial when it uses the word judgment, right? By oppression and judgment he was taken away. That word judgment in Hebrew, that talks about courtroom uh, scenes. It's a judicial term that talks about trials. So, there will be some kind of trial that takes place where the Lord's servant will be, you know, illegally arrested at night, where he will be illegally uh, illegally abused and struck as the trial goes on. There will be false witnesses who contradict each other. No crime was committed. There's no evidence against him. And when the trial finally came to an end, if you remember now in the New Testament, um, the Roman governor said on five separate occasions, I find no guilt in him. It was certainly nothing worthy of death five separate times. And yet, he was led away after an unjust trial where he wasn't given due process of law according to the Jewish system of jurisprudence, and he was killed. And the Jews of his generation, for their part, they didn't consider it. What that means in Hebrew is uh, they didn't see it for what it was and step up in protest. I mean, given the fact that Caiaphas, right, Caiaphas is the arch villain, right? If anybody's guilty of the blood of Messiah the most from a human point of view, uh, it would, other than sinners for whom he had to die like you and me, if anybody's uh, guilty in terms of the unjust trial, it would be Caiaphas. But given that Caiaphas is the arch nemesis here, where are the other high priests who step up to defend the Lord's anointed? Uh, where is the member of the Sanhedrin who stands up and says, hey guys, I don't really like Jesus any more than you do, but we need to at least abide by our own rules. We have these rules for a reason. Where is the scribe who says, no man could perform the miracles this man performs unless the Lord sent him? Where are those people? They're nowhere to be found during his trial. This is a prophecy that during his trial, no one is going to stand up to defend him. Nobody considered it. Um, he'll be taken away to slaughter after an unjust trial where no one stands up to defend him. Now, that unjust trial is the proximate cause of his death, but verse 8 also makes it clear it's not the ultimate cause of his death. Uh, the prophecy of an unjust trial is here to help us identify Messiah when He comes so that we can see that His life corresponds to these prophecies that were given by Isaiah, but that's not the reason He died. Why did He die? Verse 8, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. That's why He had to die. Remember, this isn't just a prophecy about what the Lord's servant will do. In verses 1 through 9, a Jewish man from the future is uh, lamenting. Uh, he is a repentant man who's lamenting the history of unbelief of the nation 
of Israel. And uh, the idea at the end of verse 8 is that the Lord's servant was dying for the transgressions of Israel, and that is correcting what the people thought of the Lord's servant in verse 4. Do you remember verse 4? They thought that he was struck down by God, and indeed he was struck down by God, but not for the reason they thought he was. They thought he was struck down by God for committing blasphemy, but in reality he was struck down by God in their place for their guilt. And so, the end of verse 8 is important because it makes it clear that it's not just the, you know, the unjust, oppressive trial that kills the servant, it's the transgressions of His people for which He freely dies. So, we see an unjust trial that the servant of the Lord will endure. We see that uh, this unjust trial will result in His death as He dies for the transgression of His people. And then verse 9 closes this stanza by prophesying about His burial. Verse 9 His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Why was his grave assigned with wicked men? Well, the reason why is because uh, the, the Romans were ruling over Israel at this point, and in the Roman system, when they crucified someone, Uh, Sometimes they would leave the bodies hanging, even after they were dead, as a warning to the people about what happens to rebels and people who uh, are involved in insurrection, and also people who commit terrible crimes like murder. Uh, But in this case, uh, the Romans made a concession with the Jews. The Jews had appealed to the Romans and asked them not to leave the bodies of crucified criminals hanging on the Sabbath right? And when does Sabbath start? Sundown on Friday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. And so, what they did is the Roman soldiers came and they, uh, they took the bodies. First of all, they, they broke the legs of the criminals uh, that were hung on either side so that they couldn't uh, breathe and they would die of asphyxiation. And then they took the dead bodies off the cross before the sun went down as a concession to the Jews. Now, the plan, as soon as that happened, was for the Roman detail that was guarding the crucifixion to take those bodies away and throw them in the garbage dump of Jerusalem in the Hinnom Valley, where we're told that there was a fire that was continually going, burning up all that was flammable in the refuse and the things that were thrown there. And so, the idea was that Jesus' body was assigned to be given uh, a dis… not even a burial. It's not even a dishonorable burial. Uh, he wasn't going to receive an honorable burial. His, body, his corpse was just going to be thrown into the garbage dump uh, to burn and to decay. But in Psalm 16, there's a prophecy that the Lord would not allow His servant, uh, His body, to go, undergo the decay of such an open grave. So, how will the prophecy of Psalm 16 come true? How will he receive a proper burial, even though his burial has been uh, assigned uh, this thing from the Roman Empire? Well, there was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin named uh, Joseph uh, of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea didn't consent to their unjust trial, and he didn't agree with their verdict. And he went to Pilate and asked Pilate to give him the body of Jesus Uh, when His body was taken down off the cross. And so, when the soldiers took the body of Jesus down from the cross, 
they'd already been given orders by Pilate to let Joseph of Arimathea have the body. Along with Joseph of Arimathea, a man named Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, came and they both took the body away, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a, a new tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had hewn out of rock for himself and his own family. And so, in that way, he received an honorable burial, and his body was with a rich man in a rich man's tomb in his death. Why did it have to happen that way? Well, not just to fulfill prophecy. It also needed to happen this way because the Lord's servant uh, didn't do any violence. There wasn't any deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he was holy on the outside and the inside. He didn't commit any sins. He didn't speak lies. And so, this burial is a vindication from God the Father. This is the first small step. His burial is the first small step in the Lord exalting him, right? Uh, from the Lord's point of view, yes, the Lord was pleased to crush him as a guilt offering, but death was as low as the humiliation would go. It wouldn't go any lower than that. From that point on, there wouldn't be any further humiliation um, his burial in a rich man's tomb is the first small step towards the Lord exalting him. Uh, and that's an exaltation that I'm really looking forward to telling you about next Sunday from verses 10 through 12. But before we close, turn in your Bible over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Uh, in Acts 8 verse 26, we see an interaction between two men about this very portion of Scripture. In Acts 8.26, we read, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Philip was a deacon in the early Jerusalem church. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading out loud Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the very passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life was removed from the earth. Uh, what you have here is uh, 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 an Ethiopian who's really the secretary of the treasury for his nation. And so he's uh, learned. He's learned Hebrew for himself. He's either uh, borrowed uh, an Isaiah scroll from someone who really trusts him because those were expensive, or he's purchased one for himself, having gone to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And he's reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. The reason the text sounds a little bit different is because uh, he's, we believe, based on uh, the way this is recorded, that he's reading the uh, Septuagint, so he's probably reading a Greek translation of Hebrew, and he's in the very passage of Isaiah that we just read. And look at how Philip responds to him. Look at how Philip explains it. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? 
Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. According to the unanimous witness of the apostles, Jesus of Nazareth is the suffering servant who is prophesied in Isaiah 53. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul appeals to the words that are at the beginning of the second servant song, the servant song found in Isaiah 49, and he says this, "'We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for He says through Isaiah, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you.'" And then Paul brings those very words from Isaiah into the present for his audience and says this, <clears throat> "'Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation.'" Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about a future generation of national Israel who will repent and be saved. And we're still waiting for that day. We're looking forward to that day. But even while we wait for that day, we need to say this, now is the acceptable time for you to be saved. Jesus was cut off out of the land of the living for your sins, right? <clears throat> the Lord caused your iniquities to fall on Him so that you can be reconciled to God. He did this for the well-being of your soul. He did this so that you could have peace and reconciliation with God. If you've never confessed your rebellion from God, if you've never believed in the death of Jesus taking your place for your sins, now is the time of salvation for you. Now is the acceptable day of the Lord to turn to Him and be saved. And uh, if you haven't turned to Christ as your Savior, then I want to encourage you to do that today. If you have any questions about that, I would be happy to talk about that with you after the service. But you know what else? You can ask any member of our congregation about that because every member of our congregation can tell you about the gospel. We know because we make sure in the membership process they can tell you about the gospel. They all understand it. They'd be happy to share it with you as well. And I want to encourage you to do that. <clears throat> Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son to be the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Thank You for loving us, for reconciling us to Yourself. We pray that uh, You would send Your Holy Spirit to draw many people in the Fredericksburg area and in Stafford and Spotsylvania to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to repentance from sin. We pray for these things. In your wonderful name, amen.